exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. That's what Kung Fu Podcast is all about, and I'm your host, T.W. Smith. Thank you so much for joining me today, where we're going to take a long look at the impact that Sun Lu Tong had on the Chinese martial arts. How did he take the traditional martial arts as they were at that time and then change them in a way that now the traditional martial arts has looked at differently? These episodes are going to be built around the fantastic work of Dr. Ben Junkins, friend of the program for a long time, actually before the program ever began. He was one of the resources I would go to and communicate with. You can find Ben's work at Kung Fu Tea by going to kungfupodcast.com forward slash Ben. If this is your first time to Kung Fu Podcast, welcome. I hope that you'll find this information to be educational, informative, and in many cases even entertaining. On many occasions here at Kung Fu Podcast, I talk about the numbers of reasons that people may practice martial arts, whether it's for self-protection, self-development, a philosophical way of life, for good health, for sport, for show. There's so many different areas that you can take martial arts and look at it from a slightly different perspective. We're going to reference two or three other impactful martial artists and how they had used the martial arts with their goals and objectives. But then Sun Lu Tong, and what did he do, and how did he change the form of martial arts, in the sense the mind form of it. How did people think about it? I want to share a few announcements. The references that you're going to hear in the upcoming episode should be in your show notes and as well as on the webpage when you go to visit. And I appreciate you using those affiliate links because if anytime you purchase something at Amazon and you use the links from Kung Fu Podcast, it shoots a dollar or two over this direction to help support the program. Starting on July the 1st, I'll be leading live in our Facebook group, the 11-Day Meditational Challenge. It's a program I designed to help folks from around the world start their meditational program or resurrect their meditational routine, and it's completely free. Some folks are actually going to join me here in the facility this time, which will be the first for that. And you can find everything that you need to sign up over at simplemeditationalprogram.com. The last announcement if you'd like to come to a seminar, join me and work out, along with two other fantastic instructors, Troy Price and Paul Cody. I'd love to see you September the 2nd, 2017, down at Myrtle Beach. It's a fantastic area, a great venue, and it's being sponsored by our good friend Bob Speed. If you'd like to find out more about that program and what we're going to be covering, go to kungfupodcast.com forward slash internal arts. Let's take a look at how Sun Lutong changed the course of Chinese martial arts. Ben starts the essay with the portrait of Sun Lutong. It's the pictures where he's standing in the Santi Su, and actually it's one of those more controversial pictures because later on he'll take it and it looks different in a particular book as compared to one of his earlier works, and this stimulates a whole bunch of conversation that I'll share with you in a little bit. Let's begin with the question of why. Why are we interested in Sun Lutong? Ben writes, One of the persistent problems that you can see 
in amateur discussions of Chinese martial studies is a real lack of understanding of how broad the traditional martial arts really were, and as well the variety of life experiences that they encompassed. In fact, rather than discussing China's martial culture in the singular, it would be probably better to think about these cultures in the plural. The martial arts never were just one thing, and our experience with the modern, air quote, traditional arts tends to seriously skew our perceptions of the past. So, to counter this tendency to see in martial arts as just one thing, or its practitioners as just one type of person, we have these short biographies on important and interesting martial artists from the 19th and 20th centuries. You're going to hear all about the martial arts as they were used as a revolutionary philosophy by a cross-dressing political terrorist. It was a woman named Chu Jin, sometimes known as the Last Sword Maiden. That episode is already slated up to come up to Kung Fu Podcast here pretty soon. You're also going to see it as a means of economical and political advancement for a poor boy from the country named Chung Lai Chun. He was the man who used the white eyebrow system and was the feature of KungFuPodcast.com forward slash 84. Then as well, you're going to see the biography of a man who used the martial arts as a natural outgrowth of southern China's intensely commercial marketplaces. That's when we're going to cover Chan Hua Shun and the creation of Wing Chun. These three people are historical martial arts figures and pursued very concrete economical, social, and political goals. With the exception of Chu Jin's use of martial imagery in some of her revolutionary poetry, none of the folks I just mentioned viewed the martial arts as an overly philosophical or spiritual endeavor, nor were they used as just a form of staying healthy. This gives you much more accuracy as you consider the elements that represent the life experiences of the vast majorities of China's 19th century martial artists. So in summary, the three folks we just mentioned there and their goals represented the majority of martial artists, not the minority, even though many great stories and legends may tend to make you think a little differently. Most of these individuals were relatively uneducated youth from the countryside. They sought out the martial arts either as a means to better pay and employment, for example, as a caravan guard, or as a source of entertainment and personal cultivation during the slack periods of the agricultural year. And on my personal notes, I have chaired this particular episode for almost a year. I've had it ready and massaged it and worked with it. And I had to really work with myself through this particular podcast, and I want to let you know why. I began practicing Chinese martial arts in the mid-1980s. And remember that this was before the Internet. Uh, this is, you know, you only had a couple of magazines that would come out, and you were pretty much at the mercy of whatever the publisher wanted you to learn about martial arts. And in a little town of North Carolina, there was not a lot of other types of uh, manuscripts that you could get a hold of, if they even existed. Well, one of the first things I remember is how polarizing Sun Lutong was. We were taught 
that any time we saw a manuscript that referred to the teaching and learning of any of the techniques of the martial arts in this five element theory, so for example, if he throws the fire punch, you throw the water punch and things like that, you were to take that chapter and just rip it out of the book. And most of it was so that you didn't clog up your head with all these details. Oh, if he does this with his right hand, I'm supposed to do this and I'm supposed to do that. Because all it does is create this mental jargon in your head that you can never go through fast enough in a real encounter. So why even bother? In fact, if you saw some of my books, my personal books that set up on the library, you'll see that there's all these little torn out pieces where actually I had cut out or pulled out those chapters because you would be surprised how many books that came out, say, after the 1950s or 60s. I'm not exactly sure, but I think I'm going to learn during this particular episode of when that actually started happening. But I've got a lot of books that I just pulled that out, tore it out so that my head wouldn't get cluttered up with it. And then later I ran into the work of Wang Zhanjai, who is the head of the fundamental system I learned from, Yi Tuan the mind-fist system, who in many of his early works would discuss how useless and pointless, if not even dangerous, it was to practice martial arts with the idea that these elements and philosophies were supposed to be injected into your martial arts. And even later, during the 80s, Adam Shu, who came out, who I've always enjoyed his work, used to write about how people were injecting philosophy where skills belonged. With all that being said, plus some things that I have been told because Ma Gong knew Sun Lutang and they both came out for the same branch of martial arts. So for the most part, I have put off most of the works of Sun Lutang except as a quick reference here or there. So that would be my prosecution side of Sun Lutang. But now, what have I developed if I was trying to defend him? And the first is, I started reading Ben's work and then even more recently, working and talking with my good friend, Paul Cody, who practices and teaches Xing Yi and Bakwa Zhang. Sun Lutong was a very respectable martial artist who came out of some very good teaching. Apparently, he was good enough to put his rear end on the line in order to get jobs that would basically test his skills. But perhaps even more importantly is how he went through and set a standard of preserving and sharing the martial arts. One of the other things I learned is that you can use these five elements as a way of creating a catalog of movement as well as even putting together flow drills and things like that so that you can practice your martial arts. One of the other things that Sun Lutong did, and as I just mentioned, most of the other martial artists of that time did not even think about it, was bringing the cultural aspects. What was it like in the Chinese culture during that time from his perspective and he was able to put those in to the martial arts. Through the reading of this essay and these series, my somewhat scornful look of Sun Lutong's work has come down a long, long way, and I'm very glad to be presenting this to you with a fair prosecution and defense. And looking at one of the things we spoke about in previous episodes was the difference between history versus lineages. And one of the main differences between believing in history and believing in a lineage is that history can change when new facts and when new materials put themselves right in front of you. And if you're practicing trying to understand the historical approach of things, your mind has to be opened 
up enough so that you can accept the new changes so that you can look at the history of a person, for example, in this case, differently. As compared to a lineage, most folks, when they think about a lineage, it's the only way they'll think about it no matter what else you tell them, no matter if you say, no, that person actually practiced with that teacher for 10 years, and they're going, no, 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 he's not on the lineage. Well, you know, anyway, the lineage aspects of it can take a whole different bias than what a real historical perspective will have. We're going to continue with the 2011 post from Ian Abernathy's forum, where Ian writes, As someone whose martial education has been primarily of Japanese origins, I'm very familiar with the Jutsu Tudo shift in the 1900s. Recently, I've been looking at similar shifts in the martial emphasis in other cultures. The superb Chinese martial arts training manuals by Brian Kennedy and Elizabeth Gao, a book that every martial artist should own, has lots of interesting information in this regard. When discussing Sun Lutong, who lived from 1860 to 1933, the book says the following, quote, If one wants to fight, they ought to use a gun. So said Sun Lutong, according to his daughter Sun Jinyun in Tim Cartmel's translation of A Study of Tai Chi Chuan. Sun's emphasis to his students and his books was on practicing martial arts for health reasons. This was a revolutionary idea at the time. Contrary to Kung Fu movies and the ideas of New Age Tai Chi students, Chinese martial arts had one purpose in the past, to fight. Martial artists did not practice for the health, and in fact, many traditional martial arts practices were detrimental to health. Many forms of iron body training, for example, effectively cut short the practitioners' lives by decades. It was not until the founding of the Chinese Republic in 1912 that the idea of using martial arts as a form of physical exercise became widespread. End quote. Ian continues by saying, It strikes me that there is some commonality there with karate. It's also interesting that similar changes to the way the martial arts were being practiced were occurring at roughly the same time. Just as Itoso changed the way karate was approached through teaching it in the Okinawan school system, Sun Lutong and others taught Tai Chi to the public at the Beijing Physical Education Research Institute from 1914 to 1928, and it is said that this period was instrumental in the development of modern Wu, Yang, and Sun-style Tai Chi. It seems there was also a fundamental shift in the way, air quote, internal arts were viewed at the time. Kennedy and Go continue by writing, quote, Qigong exercises, as well as the more mundane but equally important physical exercises such as push-ups and sit-ups, had long been the foundation of Chinese martial arts excellence. But Sun's writing linked, in the public mind at least, Qigong exercises and internal martial arts. The end result, which is still with us today, is the idea that internal arts are only internal because of the Qigong exercises and the reliance on Qi. This view is false. But it is a widespread view, and it is the legacy of Sun Lutong. Most of the attitudes of modern-day practitioners of Chinese internal arts 
regardless of where they study and whether they know the name Sun Lutong, were molded by his written work. He was and remains the most influential author in Chinese martial arts history. End quote. Those paragraphs right there are the, exactly the reasons why I was told to pull those chapters out anytime I saw them in the books. The young men that I trained with and practiced with needed skills when they went out into the field, not philosophy. But now I can honestly say that I'm glad that Sun Lutong did the work he did. Ian continues by saying, This shift from combat to health, the modifications that result in what is less than 100 years old being viewed as traditional or ancient, and the inevitable fundamental shift to the way an art is viewed and practiced is something that I find very interesting. Ian continues by saying, I'm sure I'm not alone in that, and that many here will also be interested to learn more about how this shift unfolded within Chinese martial arts, and the martial arts of other cultures and nationalities too. I thought that this would therefore make a good forum discussion. And then he asks, is anyone aware of any good sources that address these areas specifically? Does anyone have some interesting information they would like to share on these issues? Now, there are several responses on the form, and you can find Ian Abernathy's work by going to kungfupodcast.com forward slash Ian, I-A-I-N. And I would also recommend the same thing he said, get the Chinese Martial Studies book by Kennedy and Gao. You can find it at the Kung Fu Podcast Diehard Library, and there will be a link in your show notes. Now, let's get back to Ben Junkin's work, where you're going to have a chance to look at how do Westerners see martial artists today. Ben writes, Discussions of the, air quote, traditional martial arts, both in China and America, are prefaced with the assumption that these practices are really about health, weight loss, qi cultivation, or mental peace. You could be rest assured that the martial artists who we mentioned in the beginning of this episode and martial artists all the way up until probably the early 19th century would find that that assertion that the martial arts was about health, weight loss, qi cultivation, and mental peace, they would have found that as a total revelation. It is not that they did not value the health benefits of regular exercise. And think about it, in an age without modern medical care, they certainly had to consider their health and their well-being. And as noted earlier, these Qigong-esque exercises have been around for a very long time. But those reasons for health and mental peace were never the reasons that the old-timers braved social condemnation to practice the martial arts in the first place. Since the late Ming Dynasty, there's been a small minority of individuals who did practice and advocate the study of martial arts boxing as a form of self-cultivation. Mayer Shahar, in his masterful study of the evolution of the fighting arts of Shaolin, has demonstrated that in the late 1500s, at least one group of monks at the temple started to abandon the study of battlefield weapons in favor of unarmed boxing mixed with the Taoist longevity practices and, as well, traditional medical philosophy. It is not a mystery 
that these small groups of monks might find the mixture of strenuous physical training and philosophical mysticism intoxicating. These individuals were, after all, monks. Self-cultivation and the attainment of altered states of consciousness through strenuous esoteric activities was their day job. This was just a new technology to accomplish the goals that monks in many religious traditions have always sought. That work that Ben just referenced by Professor Meyer Shahar is at the Kung Fu Podcast Diehard Library and I'll be in your show notes. Then Ben continues by writing, What was surprising was Shahar's finding that the growing popularity of this strange brew was not confined to the nation's temples. But this new brew of strenuous physical exercise, philosophy, and medical perspective of looking at the body and healing was spreading quite rapidly throughout the lettered classes in the late Ming and early Qing period. At exactly the point in time when one might have expected elites to be the most interested in serious military study, they were instead turning their attention to more mystical pursuits. So we know that this interest in Taoist philosophy, medicine, and longevity practices has been an undercurrent in certain corners of the Chinese martial arts for a long time, probably over 400 years, depending upon how you want to interpret the story of such things as the Maiden of Yu, which was a Bronze Age fencing master who showed a keen interest in philosophy, which would then even make it longer than 400 years. But we lack the literary evidence to say much about the pre-Ming period. This holistic, longevity, and philosophical view remained a minority one. It was the sort of thing that was mostly taken up by the few educated elites who had an interest in martial arts boxing, and it did not have a huge impact on the goals and military aspirations of ordinary martial artists. But this basic social pattern started to undergo a fundamental shift in the wake of the Boxer Uprising. That was during 1899 through 1901 and has also been featured here at Kung Fu Podcast. That period and that pattern needs more attention. In the modern era, which has been dominated by firearms, the original military applications of the martial arts started to look outdated to a number of educated social elites. Actual military and police personnel had reasons to continue to be interested in unarmed defense, but these sorts of concerns rarely bothered the armchair reformer or May 4th radicals. In fact, many of these reformers and modernizers wanted to do away with traditional martial arts hand combat. To these reformers and modernizers, unarmed combat was an embarrassing relic of China's feudal and superstitious past. At this point, I'm going to reference Ian's form again on the same post where Michael Rosenbaum writes, Don Drager addressed this change in his three-volume series on the Japanese martial arts and ways, Classical Budo, Classical Bujitsu, and Modern Budo and Bujitsu. It is also discussed in Kata and the transmission of knowledge in traditional martial arts, which just so happens is Michael Rosenbaum's book. He continues by writing, With innovations in new technology and weapons, changes almost always occur in fighting arts. This is not something new, but a process 
that has been around for thousands of years. For instance, when the ancient Greeks began to employ the phalanx formation along with the round hopland shield, spear, and bronze helmet, their culture went from one of having a small social elite class of citizens who ruled everything to one of a more democratic nature. Why was that? And it was because now everyone fought in the phalanx and no one was more special than anyone else since it was everyone's duty to keep the formation intact. Hence a change in fighting styles, going from champions to mass formations brought forth changes in society. Michael continues by writing, with the growing use of firearms on the battlefield and more importantly, their increased effectiveness which gave warriors the ability to kill from afar, the role of traditional slash classical styles of fighting underwent a change which often resulted in them being more suited for exercise, meditation, or a form of cultural study. A prime example being the Koryu-Bujitsu of Japan. This change in focus brought forth by gunpowder, which Sir Richard Burton bemoaned in his book of the sword, also filtered down to civil styles of fighting and influenced them. This is the reason why we often practice karate for sport, tai chi for meditation, and aikido for spiritual development. However, the influence of gunpowder probably had more impact on the European fighting arts than the Asian styles simply because of geography. Asia is a vast region separated by oceans, whereas Europe can be traveled by train, wagon, or horse, a la the Huns and the Mongols. This, in turn, made Europeans more proactive where their fighting arts were concerned and more likely to embrace the gun and cast out the traditional styles so as stay abreast of current developments in warfare. So, long story short, is gunpowder not only affected the way we practice the fighting arts, but also our reasons for practicing them? That's the end of Michael's post, which was perfect, because that brings us right to where Ben says that for the martial arts to succeed in the 20th century, they would need to transition. They had to be made appealing to increasingly educated and modern middle-class individuals living in the urban areas. It would be hard to even imagine a group more different than those old-timers, the rural farm use that had traditionally practiced the martial arts. But this is the task that the early martial reformers of the 20th century dedicated themselves to. We've discussed at Kung Fu Podcast on several occasions the Jing Wu Association and their pioneering efforts to reform and save the Chinese martial arts as well as the nation. However, there were a number of other reformers in the same era, and while the traditional martial arts did survive, the systems that we have today are in many ways quite different from that of the Jing Wu and the later Guashu reformers had ever envisioned. Sun Lutong is a seminal figure in the history of the early 20th century Chinese martial arts. While best known in the Neijia and Tai Chi Chuan circles, his vision of what the Chinese martial arts should be is still being perpetrated today. In fact, Sun Lu Tong did more to promote the idea that the Chinese martial arts are fundamentally about health and self-cultivation than any other single figure in history. 
Now we're going to put a bookmark in it right here because that kind of sets the tone and the backdrop of what we're going to be discussing and there is a lot of information to discuss. I hope you enjoyed today's episode where we lay the backdrop to what Chinese martial arts was all about before the change in course that was headed up with Sun Lutong. We mentioned Chu Jin, the last sword maiden who will be coming up in a future podcast, Chung La Chun, who was in episode 84 and the White Eyebrow System, and another multi-series podcast that is already being slated out is the creation of Wing Chung. And in particularly, the person that we mentioned in this episode was Chan Wa Shun. I'd like to say thank you to Ian Abernathy, who has given me permission to uh, share things from his forum so that we all have an opportunity to learn from different perspectives. And that's really important to me, and I know it's important to many other martial artists. As a reminder, the free 11-day meditational challenge, you can join up by going to simplemeditationalprogram.com. If you'd like to come work out with me, Join me and a couple other fine martial arts instructors, Paul Cody and Troy Price, at the Internal Martial Arts Seminar in Myrtle Beach this Labor Day. You can go to kungfupodcast.com forward slash internal arts, and it'll take you right to the webpage and get all squared away. I want you to get out there and have a great practice today. And remember, you know, a lot of times as we practice, life gets busy. We can forget about doing certain things that are important to us. Take care of yourself physically mentally, and emotionally. Start each day with a brand new attitude. Take care of yourself, and I'll be talking with you again soon.